Now for Raising the Bar, Greater RVA's premier law talk radio show. Call into the show with your stories and questions at 804-454-1366. Good morning and welcome to Raising the Bar, Greater RVA's Law Talk Radio Show. This is attorney Colleen Quinn with Locke and Quinn. And today we're going to talk about surviving a contested adoption. And with me, I have my clients, Tiffany and Dustin Griffith. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So, and this is going to be a great show. And for anybody that has ever confronted any sort of contested litigation, even if it's custody, divorce, support, um, what uh, Tiffany and Dustin went through for an extended period of time will be applicable to anybody that has to hire a lawyer and go through the court system and just go through the financially and emotionally draining prospect um, of that process. And remember that all of the videos of the Raising the Bar Law Talk radio show um, are shown live as we do them on the Lock and Quinn Facebook page. So you can watch us live right now. Um, you can also capture the video on the Lock and Quinn Facebook page later. It's, it's saved there. Also, all of the podcasts are being loaded to the Raising the Bar Law Talk podcast uh, channel on iTunes. And you can also capture the uh, videos and podcasts on the Raising the Bar Law Talk website. Remember, too, that our website has a listing of all of the free and pro bono services that are available, including to specialty groups like veterans and folks with disabilities and all of the like. So um, it's a really good resource page. But let's get on to today's topic, which is surviving a contested adoption. And uh, Tiffany, why don't you tell us um, how did and how and why did you and Dustin originally look to adoption to grow your family? Sure. Um, we always knew we wanted to adopt. And when <clears throat> we figured we'd have children biologically first, and when that didn't work out and we had some losses, we started to research attorneys and came across you. Um, Lucky you. Yes, <laughs> we, we were looking for the best, and we did. We found it. And we actually met with you for a short period of time and did the— uh, the retainer where we were able to receive your emails about prospective children that could be adopted. And that's kind of how it came about. Okay. And then at some point, you, through various connections, and I want you to tell me about that, um, got a lead on a particular baby that might be available. Yeah. So our community, one thing that you had told us to do was to let everybody know that you, you're, you want to adopt. So we did. So our community knew that. Um, the story's a bit convoluted in the fact that my good friend's brother is a pastor in our community. Right. And our daughters, our adopted daughter's biological maternal grandmother, her friend knew that pastor and knew of the her the mother being incarcerated and the potential of the baby going into foster care and and the potential for adoption. So she went and spoke to him. He contacted us, and then he contacted the birth father and then put us together, and that's how it came about. Yeah, and so many <laughs> adoptions are happening through that just that type of diagrammed networking. Yes. You know, this person knows that person, et cetera. Yes. And also, traditionally, uh, pastors— 
um, and ministers um, were the original matchmakers for a lot of adoptions. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it makes and sense. It makes a lot of sense that yes. that came about. So, Dustin, how did you feel about this lead? I mean, it was very surprising um, to have a, a preacher come and, you know, tell us about this little baby girl that was going to be born. Mm-hmm. And then within 24 hours later, you know, our pastor came and told us about the same little girl. Okay. So, so it's kind of like fate. Right, but you all are out um, in the Powhatan community, yes. so it's yes. a little tight community out yes. there. <laughs> it's a big yes. county, but a small town feel, yes. Exactly, exactly. So um, <clears throat> when um, that lead came about, what happened next? So how did, how, did, how did Aviana actually end up getting picked up by you? The birth father had to... Um, go and get custody of her because the the birth mother was incarcerated and had her while incarcerated. So he had to actually get her from Fluvanna DSS. He brought her home and then in a Lowe's parking lot, we met in a Lowe's parking lot, he gave her to us. And then we, a day or two before that, I had contacted you. So we already had some stuff rolling to get him to sign the agreement for the consent for adoption. And we weren't sure where the birth mother's position was going to be, whether she was going to contest, not contest. Um, so we got that moving right away. What um, Had Jewish Family Services go out and meet with the mother in, in prison and... Try to find out what, what her, her thoughts stance were. was, right. yes, yes. So, um, so a lot of people don't realize that, um, you know, the birth father has just the same rights as a birth mother in an adoption to place a child. Correct. Um, and in this case, um, I mean, we I, we can use Jason's name because your case went all the way up to the Court of Appeals. There's a there's a public published opinion and everything. Yes. <laughs> um, but in this case, Jason was already raising three other boys, right? Correct. And just to bring in a baby girl at that point was really too much. And, and because the mother had been in and out of jail so frequently, there were a lot of behavioral issues happening in the home with the young children. So he wasn't, he just financially, emotionally capable of handling another child. Yeah, yeah. and a lot of people, it's to me, you know, having done adoption work for 30 years, to me it's so admirable when a parent can recognize that they just are not in a position to parent and maybe there's a better setup out there that's going to be in the best interest of that child. And you really have to admire Jason for realizing that and um, and, and saying, I've got to focus on the three children that are at home. Absolutely. He, he made, when he handed her to us, I literally felt like he just fell apart into a million pieces. You could see how hard that decision was, but he frequently says, "You that's what you do as a parent. You have to make the hard decisions. You have to do what's right. And he knew that was what was right for her. It's, it's really, when you look at love, that's like the, the, the greatest love to it actually, to, to place a child really elsewhere is. because you know that, that you can give them a better life. Yes, yeah. definitely. You know, so um, then basically tell us what happened when we found out that birth mom was not quite so on board. And, and I, I think we had talked about pursuing, you know, folks can do a consensual adoption now with an ongoing contact agreement, which is a really great way of, of doing an adoption, but it, that didn't seem to be the case, did it? No, she didn't want to have anything to do with it, but she had no means of taking care of her. She was going to be <clears throat> in, incarcerated for, you know, another 
almost two years from the time that she was placed with us at 11 days old. And she had no family that could step up to the plate and help her raise, raise the, raise Aviana. So literally there was nowhere for her to go, but foster care, unless there was this placement. Um, and she, there was no real contact with her. We allowed there to be contact, but she didn't contact us. Um, we spoke twice throughout the whole entire process over the phone. Yeah, and it's really hard with incarcerated <clears throat> parents too to to coordinate any sort of contact. I mean, you can mail things to and from um, the prison, but in terms of calls and whatnot, you, I mean, you have to be there. You have to take a collect call. It's you do. very difficult to kind of coordinate those. And things. some of those things were shocking to me. I would I would frequently email you and say, "Do I need it? Do I take this call? What <laughs> right. do I do? I'm scared. I don't know what to do. How do I handle this?" Um, so we did the few calls that we took. It was quote unquote on our dime. We accepted the collect call, talked to her, and yes, yeah. So um, tell me, uh, Dustin, because you were the you were the the working man at home that had to pony up the <laughs> pony up the bucks. Yeah. Um, were you surprised when I told you that? A person incarcerated in Virginia um, is entitled to a, in an adoption proceeding, and there are other proceedings too, but in an adoption proceeding where the parental rights are potentially being terminated is entitled to a, a free attorney. Yeah, it was very surprising. Um, you know, she didn't have to come up with anything out of her pocket or anything. She had a free lawyer, um, and here it is. You know, I had to go out work every day, and I had to pay for my attorneys. Right. You know, so yeah, it was very surprising. And I yeah. wasn't cheap, was I? <laughs> <laughs> no. No. But no. worth the, worth every penny. <laughs> but we got the best. There you go. We did get well, the well, best. Thank you. So I did try to warn you in ahead of time that it could be a long haul. Yes. And it could get expensive. Yes. Um, you know, and and that's so. Um, so when you look at so how long the process total from beginning and picking up Aviana to finally hearing that the Court of Appeals decision was not going to be appealed. How, how long was that? Two years, three months. Wow, I knew you would know these. I knew, <laughs> have, I knew you would have it down to I like do. a minute. <laughs> I do. <laughs> yes. And um, just so that folks can appreciate it, I mean, how expensive was that process? Because you not only ended up paying my fees, but you paid the birth father's attorney fees. So all in, um, Dustin, you probably have calculated the numbers. Do you have some idea? Well, it's, of- it's a little over $130,000. Wow. <clears throat> Wow. But is, it, was, it was worth every dime. And that included... <laughs> you can say that now that it's over. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but that also included, we hired we hired you, and then we hired the birth father's attorney, and we hired a private investigator per year recommendation, we hired the attachment specialist, and that also included the fees with our home study. Right. So that was the total package. All in. Yes. All in. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I and the guardian ad litem for the baby, um, I think got picked up by the state. Is that, Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because sometimes that can get assessed. Yeah, that, we that didn't get that one. Thank God. <laughs> that would have been a real blow, right? Yeah. <laughs> Another bill. So um, let's talk a little bit about how you finance that. Um, because at some point, I think uh, you, had lo- you had looked into uh, starting a fund. So, we ra- my sister started a GoFundMe mm-hmm. when we finally got through the circuit court when we knew we were looking at the Court of Appeals. And that, that only amounted to about $3,000 and some dollars. The rest of it we had in savings. And we really just believe that through the grace of God, Dustin just kept getting the jobs that 
you, we would get a bill, bill from you or from the other attorney, and miraculously, he would get a job that would pay that. So wow. it just happened. We were very blessed. Yeah. Yeah. And Dustin, um, can you tell the, the listeners what kind of work you do? I'm a Class A licensed contractor, so I'm a general contractor. Um, I build homes, additions, decks, pretty much anything you need, I can take care of it. Yeah, and fortunately, <laughs> people were turning to you yes. for that work. Yes, they were. Yeah, yeah which was very really fortunate. good. Yes. So um, let's talk a little bit about um, the birth mom, in your case, was incarcerated, and she gets a free attorney while she's also— got free room and lodging and all of that good stuff. Um, so the first phase, and most people in Virginia don't realize that you have to go, that you can you go through a juvenile court process in a parental placement adoption um, and to, to address the birth parent rights. And then if, uh, if that phase gets appealed to circuit court, then the contesting birth parent gets a new trial all yes. over, brand new. We call it de novo, mm -hmm. and you have to go through it again. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's that's one of the reasons why things get so expensive is essentially you, you go through round one, and then that gets kind of just wiped out, and then you go through round two, you know? Mm -hmm. Correct. So let's talk about that process, first of all, in the juvenile court and your experience there. Um. That one was actually, I think for me, a little bit more shocking. It was the first time that I actually physically saw the birth mother. Um, and we were very blessed. We had our entire, almost our entire church community, all of our friends and family that showed up the day of court and were there to support us. And in pink shirts. And in pink. Yeah. And support, yes. Everybody wore pink and people who or pink be there or whatever were, they had that was pink. Yes. They were putting pink posts on Facebook saying, we're not there, but we're supporting you. Um, and which so, church group was, which church? We go to St. John Newman in okay. Palatine. And I mean, our pastor was there and so many people. So from that standpoint was overwhelming and the love and support that we had for people saying, we know she should be with you. Um, and that court wasn't as long as the circuit court, but it was nerve wracking. I think that um, you just don't know and those what ifs can eat at you. And that was hard to worry about, well, what would happen? Right. Um, the other so, thing about the juvenile court is that it was, um, it, the proceeding was private. Correct. So even though all those people came from your church, et cetera, they couldn't watch right. what was happening. Because, um, you know, we ended up going back in judges' chambers and then only uh, the two of you um, and, of course, the birth father and his attorney, uh, the guardian ad litem, which is the attorney appointed for the baby, mm -hmm. um, the birth incarcerated birth mother and her prison guards. Right. <laughs> Remember? Yeah, um, they were and, there. Yeah, they were there. <laughs> and, uh, and then her attorney. And, we, of course, we were all pretty crowded in that. It was a tiny room. little yeah. space. <laughs> <laughs> um, and how did how was that? Because clearly the two of you are extremely compassionate folks, and here you for the first time you're seeing the birth mom, and there, there's a part that tugs at your heartstrings because you know it is her child, um, but she's also incarcerated due to a lot of her own actions. It's hard. It's um, I think it's, it was harder for me than my husband, and, and probably just being a female and knowing the emotions and and having had lost children, I I knew that what that pain felt like. So when one of the things that we took into consideration is when we won, 
I did not leave and go out until her guards escorted her out because I knew that all the people that were there would cheer for us. Mm -hmm. So just having some dignity and respect for the fact that this person is losing a child, even though it might be exactly what's needed in the best interest of the child, you have to have that respect for that person to understand that they're going through something too. Yeah. And then I think through the process, you also made an effort to share um, pictures mm-hmm. of Aviana mm-hmm. so that she could see that the, that she was doing well, satisfy that curiosity. Yeah, we wrote her, I wrote her several times with pictures, um, pictures of her, her baptism, pictures of just her with family, um, one of her first baths, just things like that so she could see that and know that because we were open to the open at first, the open contact agreement. So letting her know, we don't want to fight. We don't have to fight. We right. don't want to do this. Um, but it didn't work out that way. But yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and the reality is, is that, you know, uh, when, so you know, we, we proceeded under, um, without getting too legal easy, but you guys know all this, um, under 63, uh, 63.2.1205 of the adoption statutes, which is, the best interest analysis. And basically there are eight factors there that the courts has to look at, including the age of the child, the relationship of the contesting birth mom with the other children. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was a factor in this case. Um, That looks at your home, looks at attachment issues, looks at all of those uh, different factors. And so there's a lot of evidence that has to Mm -hmm. come in. Um, So one of the things uh, was um, basically... uh, the fact that she had put herself into a position, um, one of the factors is you have to be willing and able to immediately take the child. Correct. Yes. And, and, yeah. and, and that's the issue with a lot of these incarcerated birth parents is that, um, yes, they have parental rights, but when you're looking at that um, factor under the adoption statutes, being willing and able to take the child is not is not there. Correct. In fact, the judge in the circuit court said that the mother, in fact, sabotaged her own efforts to be able to parent. Right, mm-hmm. right, um, which is Judge Sella, and Correct. that was a, a, a mm-hmm. quote that got picked up in the Court of Appeals opinion, yep. too. Yeah. <laughs> yep. um, so basically, the, the concept is, is is that you've put yourself in that position of, of taking yourself out of the ability to parent. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you took yourself out of that role. So, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the attachment evaluation because um, that's something probably a lot of folks aren't familiar with, but they actually, you know, uh, it's not that different from in custody cases when folks have like a custody evaluation, et cetera. So talk a little bit about that process. The first time for me was super scary because I didn't know what to expect. And I, you're kind of, you're in a room that has mirrors where they're videotaping you and watching your interactions with the child. Um, so I was nervous the first time and that came through the fact that I was nervous. Um, and then the second time when we had to go back, we hired him twice essentially, because when we went back to circuit, we hired him again to do a reevaluation. Um, I think that what he, how he observed us and how he correlated the attachment that we have and that Aviana has with us was pivotal in our case was stating the fact that this would be detrimental to her if she had to leave this home. Right. Um, It was very important for our case and I think bared a lot of weight. Well, and even though those eight factors don't say you have to show um, that the continued relationship with the birth parent would be detrimental to the child, there's some case law. So 
really kind of showing that piece um, and showing that she's so attached to you that mm-hmm. to move her would be detrimental mm-hmm. to her was a mm-hmm. big factor. Yeah. Um, so, Dustin, how did you feel about that one-way mirror thing where you knew somebody was watching you Oop. interact with your with your <laughs> it, daughter? <laughs> well, it was very different. It was very different. And then how we had to <clears throat> leave her in the room and see how she acted without us being there and see if she really wanted us to come back and, you know, she noticed that we were gone. And then when she started crying, I was like, hey, I got to get in there to her. And he was like, okay, go in there, you know. So it was it was very different. Yeah. He's more, I'm just going to be honest, he's more of a ham. So he probably doesn't <laughs> mind where I'm kind of like, oh, I'm in front of all these mirrors. He, he probably soaked it up a little bit more. <laughs> well, and, and um, so that was Dr. Bill Whalen out of mm-hmm. Charlottesville, who mm-hmm. used to be with the Mary Ainsworth Attachment Clinic, who's really an excellent clinician. Yes. And he talks about the, um, the, purposely alienating the child from mm-hmm. the parents and putting them with a stranger to see how they mm-hmm. they respond mm-hmm. in that regard um, because they're really looking to you as the parents to soothe them, to be right. there for them. Yep, so it's your reaction while you're there, her reaction when you leave, and then how she reacts when you come back. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I think he did that when she was around uh, maybe eight months or so. She was, was about... Six, six, six to eight months, okay. and then again when she was over a year. All right. Mm-hmm. And then um, clearly he found that the attachment um, the second time around over a year was much stronger. Correct. Yes. At yes. that point, yeah. And so the, and the older the, the child gets and the more attached, the more time they've been with mm-hmm. you, of course, the greater the detriment yeah. to, to move them. That bond grows. Yeah. Yes. And that's, that's the problem with a lot of the kids in foster care is that have rea- reactive attachment disorder because— yes. You know, they've they've been moved too many times. That bond's been broken, so and right, right, and then that's where you get so much dysfunction and so much distrust and sense of abandonment by the child. Yes, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard for them. So that really was a pivotal part um, as well in in both the juvenile court proceeding and mm-hmm. the circuit court proceeding. So let's talk a little bit about how the circuit court proceeding was a little bit different than the juvenile court proceeding because now we're in open court, right? Yes, it was more um, what you would see on TV looking court. You know, the judge, there's the room for the jury, and then you have the people that can witness it. And it lasted two days, which was a shocker because we thought we'd get it in one day, and we were actually in court for 19 hours. Yeah, um, Yeah. long time and then uh, at that level, though, you were able to have um, folks from your church and friends, et cetera, be able to sit in on the proceedings. Yeah, come and watch. Yeah. Yes. And support. And how was your church um, a factor in, in that proceeding? They were there. Our pastor was there. Um, in fact, two of our parishioners testified on our behalf. Our and pastor testified pastor t- as well. Um, they were character references for us. So they were, throughout the entire process, they were so incredibly supportive. They helped um, ease some of those fears because you had that loving support constantly where, wherever we went, whether it was our family, our friends, and then, of course, our, our um, church supporting us. Yeah. So we are about to head to the break. Um, this is Attorney Colleen Quinn, and today we're talking about contest, surviving a contested adoption with Dustin and Tiffany Griffith. If you have any calls you want to make into the show, call at 804-454-1366 on any um, family law litigation questions because Dustin and Tiffany have definitely been through it. <laughs> Thank you.
You've been listening to Raising the Bar, Greater Richmond's premier law talk radio show. Call into the show with your stories and questions at 804-454-1366. Now, back to Raising the Bar. Call into the show with your stories and questions at 804-454-1366. We are back. This is attorney Colleen Quinn with the law firm of Locke & Quinn. And today I am interviewing Tiffany and Dustin Griffith about surviving a contested adoption, which they did for over two years and three months, and Tiffany can probably say to the hour and the minute. <laughs> yes. um, and we were before the break. We were talking about uh, the going through the juvenile court trial, which was then appealed for a brand new circuit court trial. And one of the things we were talking about was how much shorter and contained the juvenile court trial was, because we really only had about half a day, even though the judge stayed late. Correct. Right. Yes. And that was in a closed courtroom, but then the circuit court case went for two days. And that was in an open courtroom. So there's a, a very big difference Huge between those difference. two trials. Yes. Yeah. Um, and we do have a caller on the line. Um, Katie, are you there? Hello? Yes. Good morning, Katie. Hi. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. I'm good. Um, so I was just wondering, you talked a little bit before the break about um, the Griffiths um, talked about their, you know, relationship with the birth mom and how that was, you know, kind of strained and it didn't end up ending up with the post-adoption continued contact. But I was wondering what their relationship with the birth dad was like throughout this process and, and what it is now. Yeah, great question. So at first we, and I think even he didn't know where that relationship would would end or even how it would start. And so as things progressed, we got to know each other. Um, we talked quite frequently during, while we were in litigation, and then we remain in contact with him. He actually um, joined our church, oh, so wow. we see him on Sundays, um, and then every once in a while, I send him a picture. He's a pretty laid-back guy, so he doesn't request anything, but he we're friends on Facebook. Um, I've had our adopted daughter's biological siblings over to spend the night, so... There's a sense of family that we have with with Jason and the boys. And you actually yeah. help babysit the boys. I, I have. I have. Yeah. Yes, I have. I've, I've helped babysit them. They're now 10, 5, and 4. Wow. And I know at some point, um, there, the, at some point it was going to be revealed to the boys that Aviana was their sister. So has that happened yet or is it still in process? The younger two don't really know or ask. Um, the 10-year-old we did, I actually met Jason at a ice cream shop and we bought key, or we bought the young man ice cream mm-hmm. and sat down and talked to him and said, do you remember before your mommy went to prison? Do you remember her being pregnant? And he was actually ecstatic. We were unsure how he would process that. And he was just... He he took like ownership of her and wants to protect her. And when he sees her, he's like, "She's so cute. I love her so much." And so it's a really, it's a really, um, it's a blessing to have all of them in our lives. Yeah, yeah. So, Katie, yeah. does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. That's that's really wonderful to hear. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you so much for calling into the show. 
So, um, and I assume at some point the other boys are, when it's appropriate, will know. Yeah. Exactly. It's kind of hard to explain that to a, a five-year-old and a four-year-old. Right, right. Because <laughs> the concepts of sex and how that works. Exactly. And, <laughs> it gets exactly. a little more involved. So, yeah. um, but the, the oldest knows and he he comes up to her in church and gives her a hug and a kiss and he'll ask about her and and sometimes she'll even ask where he is because when we get to church, so... And there's another older brother out there. There is. By, there's by another father. There is a 17 year old young man who um, is autistic, and we reached out to his father and said, if if ever you thought that you wanted that contact, but he didn't feel that it was something that he would handle very well with everything he has going on. Knowing that there was a, a, a young toddler sister out there. He knows, yeah. I, I believe that the young man is aware of her, mm-hmm. but the meeting probably is not in his best interest. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Lots of different factors and dynamics yes. to think about. <laughs> yes. um, but when you think about it, just more people to, 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 love, to love the her. child. Yeah, yes. absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the Indian Child Welfare Act. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you had a lot of twists and turns in your case. Um, and uh, we, we refer to the Indian Child Welfare Act as ICWA, I-C-W-A. And you probably had no clue what ICWA was. And then lo and behold, I'm letting you know that there's this ICWA issue. So what was that all about? Shocking because there had never been any disclosure of there being Indian ancestry. In fact, the birth mother had always claimed to be very Irish. The birth father is English. um, And our daughter is very white. (laughs) You know, she's very pale, blonde hair, blue eyes. Um, So it it was kind of infuriating a little bit because you felt like they just kept throwing things in to see if something would stick. Right, right. So basically the birth mom was trying to claim that she had Cherokee heritage and then the Indian Child Welfare Act requires you, the, the new regulations under it require you to look into whether or not uh, she or the child can be um, deemed an Indian child. Um, so either she's a tribal member or eligible for tribal membership or the, or the uh, child is eligible for tribal membership. And um, basically, normally she would have to be a tribal member, but there's some tribes out there that can automatic, automatically make you a member even if you don't apply to them. So suddenly we've got this this assertion that, oh, I'm Cherokee, you know? Yeah, it came up the day of court. That was one of her attorneys opening contest, however she was contesting it, that she wanted the trial to be delayed so that they could pursue this ICWA issue. And Judge Sella had said, you know, he thought the exact same thing, that this was just a kind of a gimmick to to prolong this and that he wanted this child to finally be able to have roots and, and claim where where she was going to have permanency. Right. So um, so after that trial in circuit court, in, in an attempt to preempt anything, we contacted the three federal federally recognized Cherokee tribes to see, are, are these folks on the rolls? Are they eligible, et cetera? 
And the answer from all three federally recognized tribes, of course, was no. Was no. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and the, the day of court, my dad came up to me. He's like, we, we have Indian in us. I was like, well, it really doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah. But we had to still go through the lengths of proving to that, that it was not the case. Right. Yes. And then there was a motion to rehear on that yeah. issue. So fortunately, we had that information at that time. But I, I know that that's kind of a, was a whole wrench thrown into everything when you when you think the case is going to be about whether the child's attached and you know the birth mom's criminal history and you, you know her ability to care for the child and all those things and then suddenly we've got this ICWA thing thrown yeah. in there <laughs> it was just another hurdle to jump yeah just another hurdle and and another unfortunate uh, thing that your lawyer had to research which then cost you more money <laughs> it and her attorney was pretty good at doing some of that stuff so there were some unforeseen costs that we didn't even think that would, would come up. Right. She For a court-appointed <clears throat> attorney, she had an excellent attorney who did a really thorough job. She did. It kind of changed. I was like, does everybody get a defense like that? Right. <laughs> it really know? depends. You know, some, yeah. some folks get really good court-appointed attorneys and others get ones that don't quite put as much effort, effort into yeah. it. So, so what were your family dynamics um, while you were, you know, with both of your parents, support from family? Um, what, what was that like when you're going through this? From the very beginning, we've had an amazing amount of support. Um, I actually had to go back to work two days a week and my mom watches her one day. Dustin's mom watches her the other day. Um, but if I wasn't emailing you to say, oh my gosh, should I worry about this? I was on the phone with my mom or my dad and Dustin would be on the phone with his mom and and just getting that support that it's going to be okay. Everything, you know, they were there 24-7 for us. It, it, you go through a lot of stress. It's hard. You're constantly worrying, is she going to be taken? What will her life be like? What will happen? You know, I would hold her and think, if she's taken, she's going to cry for her mommy and mommy's not going to be there. I worried more about how that would affect her than how I would deal with it. Um, so so there they was were always there to support fear. us. There was uh, always this fear that the adoption might not go through. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Mm. There was a fear that once the birth mom got out of prison, that she, she somehow might be able to get her back. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and, uh, and there was a, a fear that you might not be able to even keep custody of her. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Correct. So, Dustin, what was that? Um, what was that like going through the, that process? It was very, very stressful. Um, majority of the day, I'm out working, so it takes my mind off everything. But then coming home and seeing my wife, who's been sitting there with her all day and worrying and everything about it, I mean, it's very, very stressful, <clears throat> um, and it takes a lot out of you. Yeah, and the financial stress is yeah, tough I, too. Yes, it is. Yeah, yes, it is. But um, God made everything happen. Um, he looked out for us, and when I needed a job, I ended up getting a job, and everything ended up working out. Which is so. right. So, um, basically, your case went all the way up to the Court of Appeals. Yes. Yes. Let's talk a little bit now about, so we've been through the juvenile court, and then we have a brand new trial in the circuit court. Um, we have all these motions. We had motions for continuance. We had motions for rehearing, uh, reconsideration. And then finally, and now it's getting appealed up to the Court of Appeals. Let's talk about what that process was like. I think that I was shocked that she was continuing to pursue it at this level. because The birth she, mother? She, she, and her attorney. Yeah, she had, and her a, attorney. She had the free court-appointed attorney, yeah. Um, she, she called the house <laughs> twice 
And in those two times, she never asked about her. So we never had that contact of her wanting to know what was going on, her milestones or anything about the baby. So it was hard for us to process, why is she still doing this? Um, and then the fear of, well, how do we keep affording this? What will we do? Because right, at that point, the birth mom had gotten out of prison. She did. Yeah. She got out of prison. Um but again, she didn't even show up the day of court. If you, it was just her attorney, and then again to to go to our support. My parents were there. Um, the biological father was there in support of it, and the GA, the new GAL at that time was because it had gone on so long. We had kind of signed a new GAL. Right. Um, she was there. Um, I think the hardest part about the appeals is that they don't render a decision right away. So you have to wait and you're at their mercy. I even called the courts and was like, can you kind of just give me a guesstimate? They're like, nope, you get it when you get it. So that was hard, just waiting and waiting. When am I going to hear something? Checking my email, waiting for the phone call. Yeah. It was hard. So um, basically, as you'll recall, um, uh, the birth mom's attorney files a brief with the court, mm-hmm. um, and then we file a response brief, and then the birth father joined in with the response brief. Um, and so I sent that to you to to kind of eyeball yes. and everything um, before we, we filed it. How, mm-hmm. how did that feel kind of getting this brief that summed up a lot of what had gone on over the almost two years at that point? At that point, you kind of live and breathe it, and it's just a checklist. Yep, that happened. Yep. Yep, yep. The the most difficult part was the opposing attorney and the stuff that she put in there that was somewhat fabricated. So I actually took hers and line by line then sent you a response saying, please make sure what you normally, you catch everything anyway. But um, it was always good having a client back you up <laughs> make sure you didn't miss anything. <laughs> yeah, so I was always doing that. Um, Which is great. You're the like best type of client to have, you know, just making sure, did you get that point? Did you get that point? Yeah. So I went through and did that and Dustin read it and I said, did I catch everything? And then we emailed it to you. Um, well, you're the most invested, you know, and, and when I went through two and a half years of custody litigation, you know, you're living and breathing it, you you know, so you're the most invested. Yeah. In terms of making sure that every point is that every point that's made there, that the counterpoint is made. Yeah. A child's life is in balance and, you know, you form this bond and she's, she's your daughter. Right. And so just the thought of her leaving is was hard. That was the hardest part. And then deflecting so that you, while you have all this emotional turmoil going on, that she doesn't feel any of that because you want her to be happy and healthy. So there was a lot of pulling back and not letting her know how stressed we really were. That's really difficult to not let the child feel the stress that you're going through. Yeah. And not not let her see that, you know, not let her see it on your face and how you act and everything. Just, just make her happy. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, that, and that's really similar to a lot of folks going through cust- any custody litigation is sh- is just trying to to keep that from the child so that they're they're protected, they yeah. stay intact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So at the court of appeals level, um, there then was oral argument before the three panel judges that you went and attended. What was mm-hmm. that experience like? I think my biggest shocker was that they it was hard. You didn't have one judge, so you had to try to like read each three judges and see which one's making an expression and then you're timed. So, you know, you're almost like on a stopwatch and, and, you know, but you were, 
I mean, Colleen, you were brilliant. You oh. knew everything that day. You knew the law. You helped. I knew your case inside and out. So you were able to get everything across and then even have some time to spare. And when we were leaving, um, our GAL at that time came up and gave me a hug. And she said, you got this. She was like, Colleen was worth every penny. Uh-huh. And it it was. It worked out that way. It was. That was really strange yeah. when the judges didn't have any more questions for me. And. There were other things I could keep talking about, but there's one rule that you learn, and that is, you know, unless there's something that you really have to say, don't keep talking because sometimes you can like talk yourself into a hole. <laughs> yeah. <you know>? yeah. <laughs> and when and usually when they stop asking you the questions, it's that's a good sign, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yes. you're no longer getting drilled. You've pretty much responded right. to all the issues. And so there's a point where you have to shut up and sit down. Yes. You know? And and then the other attorney came back because she had the chance to, to respond speak again. Right. And they had more questions for her. Yeah. Yes. And, that, and that's always a good sign when they're pummeling the other side with questions and they don't have Anything as many for you. Yes. Right? <laughs> so um, uh, then you had to wait for the Court of Appeals to issue its decision. It was about 45 days. Yeah. Ish. That's a long yeah. time to be waiting for a decision. Um, and so tell us about the experience when you finally got the courts rolling. Um, the birth father called me and said that his attorney had just told him. And I'm like, no way. No, what? I haven't heard anything. And I'm just freaking out. And so then I pull up my email and your assistant had had um, emailed us. And then she called me and I'm literally jumping up and down and screaming and going, it's over. It's over. We won. We won. We won. The cable guy's there. He's looking at me like I'm crazy. (laughs) And, you know, our daughter's looking up at us like, what is going on? I called him. I called my mom. And then you're just, it's surreal. It's almost as surreal as, as the day that we got her, you know, this, it's done. Right. And then, um, and then when the we found out it wasn't going to get appealed again. So the, then there was the 30 more days right. that we had to wait. So then on January 26th, we were like, it's done. The finality of that, you learn to live a new normal because you live for all this time during litigation with all that stress, the fear, the worry, the, the financial burden. Um, and then to learn to live like, you know, just normal again. Just this right. past weekend, we were talking about <laughs> not, let's not afraid vacation. of her being taken. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. yeah. Not, and not having another attorney bill to pay. <laughs> I mean, it's a big weight off of your shoulders. He yeah. kept saying, yeah. "It's not over until I get the final bill." So I told him, "I said, look, we got a zero balance from Colleen." <laughs> That's right. So um, basically, you you finally got to that point of this sigh of relief. And you've got this this new normal that has kicked in. So um, tell us in terms of um, uh, Aviana and your relationship with her. Do you you feel like it was easier for to, for her not to, to keep your stress? You you lost your stress now, so you no longer had that. So do you feel like the relationship you were able to have with her is now a, a much easier relationship? I don't think I ever struggled with the relationship with her. Um, I think that internally it's easier for me because I'm not trying to have any of that transfer of emotion. Gotcha. Um, and then there's always like a time period of reality check. I don't have to worry. You, you can wake up. You don't have to worry. I don't have to worry about checking my email. Did something new come in from the opposing attorney that we have to now fight? Um, and then, you know, the stress that, that goes away because anytime you have stress in a relationship, 
any part of your life, it stresses every other part of your life. So then, you know, us not having the stress between each other, Dustin and I, and... Um, what does it feel yeah. like um, with uh, knowing that if anybody Googles your name, the first thing that comes up <laughs> is the Court of Appeals opinion. It's like a 30-page opinion, so it's it's got all of this private information about you and your story. I knew about it. So when you sent some preliminary questions, we might talk about this, we might talk about that on the radio show. He was reading through them, and I'm in the living room with Aviana, and I hear him go, What? that's what happens when you Google our name. <laughs> I started laughing. I was like, yep, that's what happens. So it's pretty much the first thing that pops up. So I think that because it went in our favor, it doesn't bother me. If it had been the other way around, it probably would have been hard to know that that's there as soon as we're, we're searched. Right. Um, well, and that Court of Appeals opinion now is one of the key opinions out there on a contested placement with an incarcerated birth parent. Yeah, um, new and, case law, right? Yeah, it is. It is. You're, you, 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 <laughs> you, bas- you basically plowed a new path, you know? Yes. So, um, because there wasn't much case law out there, mm-hmm. I mean, we tried to gather everything we could on uh, cases with contesting incarcerated um, birth parents. Um, but a lot of those cases were with birth parents that were incarcerated for a pretty long period of time. And here, the birth mom in this case, I mean, she was uh, scheduled to get out of prison uh, just two months after the circuit court trial. Correct. Um, so that was a big factor that Judge Sella had to consider um, was the fact that she was about to get out. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also had the benefit of um, having uh, over overheard and overseen uh, some of her criminal Correct. proceedings. Yeah, a right. lot of her felony charges were in Palatine County. And one of the things that came up there was that, you know, past behavior oftentimes is a good predictor of future behavior. Yes. So let's <laughs> talk about that a little bit because what has happened with the with the birth mom since she's gotten out? Um, she seemed to do well for a short stint of time. She remarried very quickly within five, six months of being released and then immediately things started to crash addiction came into her life again she's um been arrested for several assault charges a dui a failure to appear so there's been a lot of turmoil i know she's been um in tuckers and things like that so and then she's almost completely lost visitation of her other children wow um so she's She's suffered a lot, I would say. Yeah, know. and it's unfortunate because you would hope that, you know, that incarceration period, and I know that she worked really hard to rehabilitate herself, mm-hmm. um, you know, but but issues with addiction in particular are Correct. pretty hard to kick. She, you know, I th- she went back to her, her old house. Her mother had passed away while she was in incarceration and, and left her the, the home that was their family home. Um, and I I think that, some of those patterns just fell into place for that's, her. And th- and that's a good observation, Tiffany, because um, I had a case where I represented a birth father who was incarcerated um, on drug charges, and he got out, and the first thing he did was he moved from the Richmond area to another part of Virginia, yes. and yes. he got a whole new set of friends and supporters, um, and, you know, he has been out. He actually got custody of his, his son back. Wow. Yeah, but... Um, you know, not going back to that same environment um, 
getting out. He did turn to um, to church as well. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there were a, a lot of different factors that went into being successfully rehabilitated. Well, a, a lot of times they say that you have to change your patterns. You have to change where you were, your friends. So she went back into a lot of things that were stressful to her and similar patterns. And the things that stressed her, she invited back into her life. And ultimately, you know, she's no longer in that home. She's living with her aunt and... Um, I'm not sure where the assault charges are going to go, but it hasn't been a good road for her. Do you have any contact with her? Um, she has called the house a couple times. Um, and I believe, I can't say for certain, but it, it did seem that she was inebriated in some sort during those conversations. Um, I feel really, I know what it's like to have a lot of loss because, you know, Dustin and I, we lost several children um, I actually had a prayer blanket made for her that had several verses on there. Um, one, some that she had sent me in a letter once and some that I have on a prayer blanket for Aviana and I took it to her house and gave it to her. And it's hard. I think it's just hard seeing how, how broken she yeah. is and her life is. And how, how do you um, plan to explain this? How are you explaining it? Um, a lot of folks will do a my birth, my birth story or my adoption story. Um, and, and and knowing the two of you, I know that you're going to put things in a very positive light, but, but how is this all going to be explained to Aviana? So I tell her all the time at bedtime, and in fact, the night before I tell her, um, you were a gift from God. And I said, the day you came home, you were the greatest gift to mommy and daddy. I don't want to cry. Um, and she looked at me and she said, oh my gosh. <laughs> and so we're kind of planting that seed to be able to tell her that, you know, I don't want her, if she gets old enough, so there's age appropriate disclosure, I don't want her to know things until she gets old enough if she asks me about her her birth mother. Right. Um, so we'll probably go along with the, you did have a tummy mommy, you know, and you had another daddy that really wanted you to have the best life you can have and be with us and and we do. We look at her every day as a gift from God. Um, her middle name is Grace because it's by God's grace that we have her. Oh. So, And how does she know Jason? Does she know him as like Uncle Jason? Or? She just says Jason. Okay. Yep. And he's cool with that. Yep. Yeah. So, and then, yep. it, and then it, at, at some point, the slowly but surely, um, just as Jason's boys have had to learn, well, the oldest one knows, yes. um, eventually they'll all get it figured out. Yes. Yeah. And I and I think it's up to her how much she wants to interact. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, but again, it's just more people to to love, to love her. The child. Absolutely. So, well, we have had a fascinating show today with uh, Dustin and Tiffany Griffith. And if you Google their name, uh, <laughs> you will find the Court of Appeals opinion, which is some thirty pages. It I is think. thirty it's some pages. Long. Yes. Yeah. And you can read about uh, the whole process. But thank you so much for joining me on the show today and sharing um, what has been a, a pretty emotional long journey. Definitely. Uh, thank you for having, for having us. us.